David Pro, how's everything going, man? It's it's going well. <laughs> we're uh, we're in your studio, uh, which is absolutely beautiful. Um, tell tell me about like what made you build this thing, and what what what's the vision of this place? What, what's going on here? Yeah, so I think five years, seven years ago, mm -hmm. I was a big fan of Casey Neistat, and mm. he is a YouTuber. Had this epic studio in New York, and mm. I always wanted to <laughs> to go to that studio. It had so much personality, and I'd always thought what would it be like to have a studio like that? And mm. then there, once I started teaching and really doubling down on Rite of Passage, which, mm -hmm. which you were a student in, I said, you know what, let's do a studio. Let's really take production of education and let's mm. turn it up to 10. Mm. And then also there was a hole in the market where a bunch of people were publishing books and they're mm. going on book tours and there wasn't anybody who was talking about the process of writing the book everybody mm -hmm. was talking about the contents of the book mm -hmm. and so i basically said okay there's an opportunity to start a podcast and an interview series with authors who are mm -hmm. on their book tours and so that's the eventual goal of this place mm -hmm. and then also i got so tired of every studio having the same sterile minimalist aesthetic <laughs> with nothing on the walls and i just tried to ask what would it look like to have a studio that has a strong maximalist taste mm -hmm. and so spent many many months working on it <laughs> yeah and uh you it, it shows you got you know all kinds of stuff back here but uh but let's uh let's go back to sort of what what brought me to this conversation which is really about um you know this age of abundance that yep. we're in right like uh we we have way too much information entertainment options and things like that and i think one of the things that i got out of your course is really being more selective about what I let mm. in mm -hmm. uh, and like sort of thinking things differently because we, we do come from an age of scarcity yep. and that transition to abundance definitely changes things. So describe to uh, describe for my audience like what what is this age of abundance, first of all, and how do you sort of navigate it in a way that's intelligent yeah the age of abundance is what you feel when you're trying to go to sleep and <laughs> you have this phone next to you that's mm -hmm. two feet away from your head mm. and you're like why can't i sleep and you have the all of the information that has ever been produced in human history mm -hmm. that is just right there you have the vitriol of mm. the modern news cycle mm. you have all the drama all the gossip you have the potential to instantly connect with all the people who you've met and become a Facebook friends with mm -hmm, 15 mm -hmm. years ago. Now, people who are in your phone network. And that is so different from the kind of experience that you have if you're living in a rural place mm -hmm. and you got a you get the newspaper every day mm -hmm. and you got a wall of books. Mm -hmm. And what happens with the age of abundance is information and all markets of abundance like food is the same way mm -hmm. the returns to responsibility and really deliberate decision making go way up mm -hmm. and so there's something that i call the paradox of abundance where i think abundance is bad for the median consumer but really good for the most intelligent ones many years ago i had a conversation with a guy named charlie songhurst mm -hmm. And he worked very closely with Bill Gates. He was on the executive team at Microsoft. And he's now been an angel investor for many years. And I said, Charlie, what is one of the 
biggest things that you've noticed about how the world is changing. Mm. And he said that the very smartest young people are so much smarter mm. than they were at the same age 30 years ago. Mm. And it's that access to abundance. Mm. But at the same time, we see people just get totally swept away like a wave hitting you when you're not very experienced in the ocean and just getting floored by gossip, mm -hmm. by celebrity drama. And the most pernicious one of them all is the news, which <laughs> seems so important in the moment, mm -hmm. but really isn't as important as the media companies tell you that it is. Mm. And we're bombarded with this on yep. a daily basis. Uh, and it's almost like they're trying to hack into our brain to see you know, what we'll respond to, and they produce more of that, which is why we get lots of listicles everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how do you, um, how do you navigate this? Because what, what, what we're getting right now is, I don't know, we're, we're essentially eating lots of, you know, sugary drinks or something like that, rather yeah. than anything that's actually good for us. What, how do, how do we change our information diet? Yeah. So I'd, I'd love to hear from you and what you do here, because I think that you do a really good job of this. But mm -hmm. I think that there's a few little tricks that mm -hmm. I have. So the first is I'll go from most tactical to least tactical. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that I do is I only read through Read It Later apps mm -hmm. and through the Kindle. And mm -hmm. so I think the Read It Later apps is 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 the most interesting. So my friend Tiago calls it the reactivity loop. So mm -hmm. you'll be scrolling on social media mm -hmm. or you'll be going through email and you'll see an article. And somebody will say, this is really important, must read, breaking mm -hmm. news, right? <laughs> and you'll say, oh, I need to read this now. So mm -hmm. stop what you're doing, mm -hmm. and you'll instantly read that thing. Mm -hmm. Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> Save it into another place, a central location, mm -hmm. where all of your articles are saved, and then make a deliberate choice from 8 to 10 p.m. or something to say, okay, now I'm going to read. Mm -hmm. And then you're only choosing from things that you've saved to read later. And so you'll see that you're in a much more sober state mm. and now you can be much more discerning with what you choose to read and to and, and what to avoid. Mm. I'd say that's the first big thing. And then the other thing is just to appreciate how much of society's recommendations are oriented towards the now. Mm. The entire gravity of the internet, the way that we've designed it is mm. based off a of recency bias. Mm. And I think this is terrible for society <laughs> mm. because what it does is as a creator it makes you publish all the time mm -hmm. which lowers the quality of content that's produced mm. and as a consumer it privileges news and things that have been published in the last 24 hours at the cost of great books that have been written you know you're in here in my studio right now i'm looking around i think there's one book that has been published in this decade mm. and that's a very intentional choice to basically remind myself, to remind readers to not be so attached to what just came out mm. and to really focus on the wisdom of history. Because, you know, we're talking about the phone being right next to you. You have the great writings of history right there. You have Nietzsche, you have Plato, you have all those sorts of people. Mm -hmm. And yet we default to what some journalist wrote on a three-hour deadline <laughs> this morning and that they published impulsively because they were feeling moved just mm -hmm. in this one morning of one day. And I just think that the relative weighting of what we read in the present versus mm -hmm. the wisdom of history is just absurd. Mm. And that that's a, a, an, a, 
and orientation towards now is what we would call, I guess, in economics or, you know, even in Bitcoin, like high time preference. Totally. Right? Perfect. And uh, and that that's uh, in contrast to sort of like the low time preference books uh, that that uh, that we're looking at. But of course, like they're not nearly as sweet. Right. <laughs> it's it's more like nutritious meat or something like that. Um, I, I guess for the people listening to this or watching this, what recommendation would you give to get them to want to, you know, read the more meaty stuff? You know, the, you know, philosophers of old and great books that were written 500 years ago, rather than, you know, a fun listicle that you can, you know, um, mention to your friends and, you know, have a fun conversation about, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's hard to answer that question in general. I'd have mm -hmm. to know for each individual person. Mm -hmm. Take a writer, though, because mm -hmm. that's usually who I'm speaking to. If mm -hmm. somebody wants to write on the Internet, what mm -hmm. I would say is this is going to give you a bunch of advantages and that mm -hmm. you're going to be reading things that other people aren't reading. Mm -hmm. And the ideas that you're going to be drawing from are going to be more rooted and they're going to have more intellectual weight. Mm -hmm. And so it's basically the difference between, you know, like, an Amazon Basics steak knife <laughs> and like one of the best steak knives that you can possibly get. Like they're mm. both steak knives, but the the really good one will have a weight. It'll cut mm. like butter. It'll mm. be fit for purpose and all these sorts of things. Mm. And it's not like this switch. It's not binary where you mm. just go from reading, being stuck in what I call the never ending now where we're mm -hmm. constantly spinning on this treadmill of what's been created recently to mm -hmm. something that's more timeless. It's a relative change, but mm. over time, what happens is your your tastes become more refined. You know, mm. I remember favorite dessert I ever had was a chocolate mousse when mm. I was like 12 or 13 years old. Mm. I had four bites of it and I was done. Mm -hmm. And the entire mousse was that small, but it was mm -hmm. at a French restaurant with extremely rich chocolate. Mm -hmm. And it was high quality. You don't need a lot of it. Mm. And what we end up doing as a society is we end up binge eating Sour Patch Kids. Mm. And it's stuff that gives you a really quick dopamine rush and adrenaline spike. but And then you eat so much of it, but it doesn't have that lasting, it's beyond sweetness, the depth of a really good chocolate mousse. Mm. That's interesting. It reminds me of like a scene from Paralandra. Have you read that book? No, no, no. Okay. It's, it's the middle book of uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, uh, space trilogy. But he goes to Venus and he's like eating this fruit that's um, that's really delicious. Um, and But once one in every 10 or so, there's a fruit that ha that tastes especially good. Right. And he he comments in the book that if they had this on Earth, they'd figure out a way to breed just the one with that's the tastiest. But what he what he says in the book is, but all of the ones that didn't have it made the one that was mm. especially sweet like that that much better. It's if you just go to the part of the song that you really like, like the you know height of a symphony or something yeah. like that like and just listen to that over and over it it just doesn't sound the same totally. as if you had to sort of like wait in anticipation and he actually posits in in the book like this is the root of all sin <laughs> like the desire to get something at an inappropriate level uh which which is like a form of greed or something like that at least that's what i remember i don't know but that idea of 
sort of like binging on something because you liked it rather than sort of like restraining yourself. It's a very, very different sort of like mentality than what we have, right? Yeah. So, so, so let me take the same idea and mm-hmm. give you a little bit of a different, mm-hmm. a different take on it. So I'm looking at The Power Broker mm-hmm. by Robert Caro. Mm-hmm. And what that book does is every individual moment of that book isn't mm-hmm. trying to give me peak attention, mm-hmm. but the totality of that book mm-hmm. taught me so much about power, mm-hmm. taught me so much about New York City, and mm-hmm. changed my relationship with the world profoundly. Mm-hmm. And so I think sometimes when you don't—I think that when you don't need to optimize for the perfection, the—, the maximize every individual moment you can mm. actually create something that in unison has more depth and and more weight to it mm. yeah and and as a result you get something that uh that you wouldn't otherwise get if you're if you're just sort of in that now and i, I don't know there there's maybe an appreciation of the peaks that you get more of if you had to sort of like build up to it instead of sort of constantly being there I don't know. Maybe maybe that's like what the root of like being bipolar or whatever mm. is. It's this addiction to the high and then you just sort of have to fall off. There's there's a natural rhythm to these things that uh, that maybe we're not appreciating. Maybe maybe that's that's the main idea here. Yeah, and it it's hard to like maybe you talk about your love mm-hmm. for the Sistine Chapel because mm-hmm. I think that that can answer this, right? Mm -hmm. The Sistine Chapel, it's not giving you, I mean, in some senses, it Mm -hmm. it has this magnificent, it's just Mm -hmm. magnificent. But in another sense, it has this this depth where you can Mm -hmm. go see it and then you can think on it, see it and think on it. You can zoom into one part of it Mm -hmm. and then it, the whole totality of it is, is, is its own experience. But that kind of art is, Mm -hmm. I don't want to call it anti-modern, but it's mm-hmm. very different from what is now created. Well, I, I would call it anti-modern because mm-hmm. the modern is based on this sort of like instant gratification, immediate sort of fulfillment of some very surface level need or something like that, uh, rather than something with a lot more depth or something uh, that has, um, I don't know, a long-term implication, something something to that effect. And that, that seems to me the crucial difference is that in a lot of the stuff that we are bombarded with, it's it tastes good now, but, you know, moment on the lips, you know, lifetime on the hips kind of hmm. information rather than, um, you know, something that goes much further and like sort of develops character, you know, gives you a refined um, palette from sort of an information perspective. Yeah. Yeah. What's weird is just seeing these same patterns persist everywhere. So, Mm -hmm. like, if you look at something as benign, as mundane as door handles, Mm -hmm. go to a 18th century, 19th century, would be 19th century chateau in in, in France. Like, the door handles have a ornamentation, a sophistication, Mm -hmm. and a density to them that Mm -hmm. now the ones that you find at Lowe's and Home Depot, they don't have. Now they tend to be light and flimsy Mm -hmm. and trendy. Mm -hmm. And what's funny is, you know, the biggest thing that you learn if you spend time away from the internet, Mm -hmm. I, I spent like two weeks away from the internet earlier this year, and you come back, and it's just amazing how much of the internet is just telling you 
what is happening right now is something you need to focus on. And it is like telling you what to do, how to think, how to be, how to live, all these sorts of things. Very, it's just like adds so much. It's just like this energy spike. Mm -hmm. And if you just spend time in nature and you just, you know, you just watch the seasons sort of mm -hmm. evolve or, or the, the days, just sunrise, sunset, sunrise, sunrise, sunset. You just realize that the scale of the time is is like elongated in the way mm. the act the the world actually works, and the internet has like shrunk it. Mm. And so, I think you see higher time preference in terms of mm -hmm. currency and the shift mm -hmm. to fiat. I think you see something similar, higher time preference in terms of the internet mm -hmm. due to the incentive structures of it. Yeah, and that's uh, that's a very um, modern thing, right? Like, uh, and there's a demand for that, which, um, which I, in a sense is a little bit artificial hmm. because I, I, I like I, I mentioned earlier, it feels like they're hacking into our brains, right? And saying, okay, this, um, you know, the AB test, absolutely everything. What will get more people to click? And it's really much more about impulse or, you know what what will get them to go take that action rather than you know what what they really actually want i i know so many people that are reading things on the internet that are miserable yeah. right because in part because they're reading stuff that is you know like if it bleeds it leads i guess or something like that so that that to me is the essence of the modern way let's go back what what's the traditional like way in which we consumed information and how can we bring some of that back because in a sense i feel like we're a lot more shallow or a lot shallower and we could use a lot more depth especially in how we think about you know the world and all that is in it yeah i mean i'll just give it to you straight up mm -hmm. if it was published in the last five years yeah. don't read it <laughs> just try that mm. right like the that sentence is so like what <laughs> but i'm kind of just being provocative mm -hmm. to prove a point and i read stuff that was published today mm -hmm. or yesterday all the time right mm -hmm. i'm not saying okay you need these steadfast rules for yourself but go week mm -hmm. go month if it was published in the last five years don't read it or what if you just experimented with you're just going to live different decades so mm -hmm. for one month you're only going to you're only going to listen to stuff watch stuff, read stuff from the 1970s, mm. 1980s the next month, <laughs> 1990s the, the month after that, or go back even farther. And so I think that that's one thing. And then the other thing is I think that finding ways to just read physical stuff mm. will take you out of that loop. Get the phone mm. away from you. I mean, this is all standard stuff now. Mm. But getting away from reading on your screen mm -hmm. immediately when somebody sends something to you, mm -hmm. that is a huge place to begin. And over time, your taste improves. So mm -hmm. you can tell when a piece of writing is is cheap and it's flimsy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and I think also just getting more sensitive to the quality of writing. You know, mm -hmm. it is astonishing how much good writing is correlated with high quality information. And mm. I mean that in terms of the the thoughtfulness that goes into a sentence and a mm. paragraph and specific word choice. It's like 
the filigree mm-hmm. on a building and you can only start really focusing on those design choices once the building itself is sturdy mm. and once you've read enough you can just instantly tell if somebody is trying to sound like a good writer or if somebody <laughs> actually is a good writer and there's just a high correlation between good writing and good information mm. So reading, I guess, more beautiful writing will improve your taste and maybe make you a little more low time preference in your information consumption. And then also just writing like, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the things. So I spent the the, the weekend with a friend who is a really avid cook. Mm. And one of the things that he was telling me, and you'll appreciate this, Mm So he's obsessed with making steaks <laughs> and he's like, you know, he's got his ultimate grill. He mm. spends like 40 hours prepping the steak, mm-hmm. you know, like dinner Saturday mm-hmm. begins Friday afternoon. <laughs> so, you know, we're salting the steak, we're putting seasoning on it. We're putting it through this, this whole process of preparation. <clears throat> and he looks at me, he says two things. First of all, the kind of steak that I can make at my house is so much better than the best steak that even the best steakhouse can make. Mm. Not because I'm really good, because economically it just doesn't make sense for these steakhouses to spend 40 hours working on a steak. Mm. But the other thing is that once you start cooking, your understanding of what goes into food Mm. goes up and you realize how important ingredients are. Mm. So I said, hey, are you just buying the steak from the local local grocery store? He's like, no. I found a a ranch in Iowa. Mm -hmm. It gets shipped from Iowa to where (laughs) I live, and this is the best steak for me. Mm. And I say all this because reading and writing has the same relationship, Mm. that when you're writing a lot, Mm. you realize that, okay, the ingredients are really important for what goes into your writing. Okay, so now how do I find better ingredients? And then you start really refining your taste for what kinds of books have the right ingredients all the way down to like this is ridiculous but like certain books with that font mm-hmm. aren't gonna have good ideas and like you end up sort of just picking up a book you're like okay this font is mm-hmm. like the wrong font for really good thinking mm-hmm. and you just develop all these heuristics and mm-hmm. you're never perfect but you're just sort of asymptotic towards what's going to get better and better and 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 having higher quality information that you're consuming, which is like those ingredients for the steaks. Mm. I, I, I do find that uh, when I am writing more, I just consume less. <laughs> and, totally. And maybe maybe that's part of the process. But um, how, like a lot of people aren't writers, right? So what, what do you say to them? Like how do you maybe even get started writing or how do you refine your palate so that you know, you start eating stuff that's healthier for you. Yeah. Well, it's hard to say because I think that what I have noticed, like if you study art, which Mm -hmm. is like, especially painting, I'm very Mm -hmm. interested in. Basically, every painter who I've studied, almost all of them, Mm -hmm. have been very, you can see their influences in their work. And Mm -hmm. so I do think that creating making stuff in that Mm -hmm. medium is as close to a panacea as you'll find Mm -hmm. the other thing that i would say is you know then you can just (laughs) you could just tap into seven sins right Mm -hmm. you could say okay pride and vanity Mm -hmm. you're going to be the smartest person at Mm -hmm. the party 
Mm-hmm. Envy, you're going to be as smart as the smartest kid in the class mm-hmm. who used to say, ah, I want that person. I don't like them because they're so much smarter than me. Greed, you're going to actually have all the best ideas in your mind. You're going to mm-hmm. think better than everybody else. And so I think that maybe we can use the worst parts of human <laughs> nature for good here. Uh, so that that's the motivation, I guess, for refining your taste and yeah. maybe, uh, maybe doing a little bit better, I guess writing on the internet or something mm-hmm. like that. Well, so let, let's go back to sort of uh, taking in whatever it is that you are reading and assuming that it's really high quality stuff. What what do you do to really get the most out of it? Because oftentimes, like, uh, you know, if we, if we treat, you know, uh, an older work that has a lot of depth to it, the same way we do a listicle that we read, that's probably not going to fly. So I, I suspect that your mentality or how you approach the, uh, the words has to be different. What, what are some things that we can do there? So I'll tell you the first one is you don't need people treat books with way too much seriousness. Mm. <laughs> like a book is some like a novel. Sure. You want to mm-hmm. start from the beginning, mm-hmm. but you can pick up many books at the chapter that you like. Mm-hmm. Skip a chapter if you don't like it and just dive into something that 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 resonates. I love biographies. I mm. hate the beginning of biographies until I know stuff about the person. Mm. So I've been really into the work of Walt Disney. So I started at the creation of Disneyland because I'd just gotten back from Disneyland. <laughs> so I'm like starting 450 pages into his biography. I work up to page 600 and then I can always go back if I want to. Mm. And so I think treat books with less seriousness. You don't need to read from the beginning to the end. And then the other thing that I'm always trying to think about in my reading is just reading. Like you don't need to read that much. Mm. I, I think that I spend a decent time reading, but when I find something good, I follow that. So Mm -hmm. if I'm reading, about, for example, take a painter like Cezanne. Okay, mm-hmm. so Cezanne is is working in southern France. Okay, so he goes to Paris. Okay, so interesting. There's this cafe in Paris where a bunch of these mm-hmm. people were 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 working these painters. Okay, now let's just go on Wikipedia and let's just follow that trail. <laughs> and so I see books as not just as like how do I download this information. But first of all, as like an entry point into mm. all of these other ideas that I couldn't find that I'm then going to go follow and, mm. and, and and find that thing. But also as just creating this, this space that I can think in. Mm. And if I read a book, I think just as much as like, what are the thoughts I'm going to have while I read the book as mm. w- can I extract the information from it? Mm. And that, that's something that um, I, I've realized about your note-taking system that's a little bit different it's not necessarily about summarizing hey this is what the author said in the paragraph it's okay here's an interesting idea let me jot down some ideas that this triggers in my head Mm -hmm. write that down and then you know get it imported into some sort of note capture Uh, but that that to me was like a very um different way of reading where you're reading to generate ideas and not to necessarily know everything well i mean hopefully you're understanding what the author is saying but there it, it's like a creative reading and not a i don't know like um an absorbing of whatever the person is saying 
Well, look at the way a painter goes to an art museum. Mm-hmm. They take their easel, mm-hmm. they take a stand, mm-hmm. they have their paintbrush, and mm-hmm. they paint to try to replicate what they're looking at. Mm-hmm. And they'll sketch it out, or mm-hmm. they'll try to do a perfect replication. Mm-hmm. And so I think that often people think of the difference between consumption and creation as like these two separate modes of society or of, mm. of life right it's mm. like i have my consumption time and then i have my creation time mm. and i say actually while you're consuming mm. what can you create and if you get inspired go follow that mm. or you can take notes and write a little note in kindle for example about okay why is this of interest go do that go go write 150 mm. words about why something resonated with you mm. and as you're reading start thinking okay what ideas are coming to life i think one of the the great perils of the modern note-taking movement is that it's so oriented towards capturing other people's ideas mm. and should be more focused on capturing your own ideas as well mm. and thinking about how other people's ideas in your own begin to interplay yeah and that that's uh that's the important thing right in a sense the this is the stuff that you want to explore and think about and sort of be much more active about as you um you know read something is what what thoughts does it trigger how and in that way it almost feels like you can read a book twice and get a very different experience because you're going to have different thoughts that come in and different ways of looking at it based on whatever you happen to be thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what are some, um, what, I, I think what you, you had described is sort of like, a, a, you know, it, it makes the process of reading a creative endeavor. It's almost like sanctifying reading or sanctifying mm-hmm. consumption in a way. Um, for a lot of people, this isn't something that they do normally, right? Like where they'll go and write things down. And that in itself is like a very difficult um, sort of step for them to take. It, it is to write something down about, oh, that here's an interesting thought or something. Mm-hmm. Or maybe their brain doesn't work that way. Um, what are what are some effective things that have worked that you've seen for people that don't note take or try to like read in a creative manner or something like that? Yeah, I think that one of the best things you can do is just spend time walking. Mm. I think that a lot of what we've been talking about is this sort of very direct relationship between reading and writing mm. and having them oscillate, just the oscillation mm-hmm. of those two things being very tight. But there is this weird paradox of reading that the books that you read radically change your life, Mm. even though you'll forget most of what you read. (laughs) And there's a way that information doesn't just register Mm -hmm. in the conscious, easy to recall part of your brain, but something deeper inside, something deeper inside of who you are and your identity, your Mm -hmm. being. And I do find that just having the free time, the free space to just follow the wandering trails Mm. of your creative spirit is really a worthy activity. And to not be so, so obsessed with the utility of your curiosity. Mm. I think that's one of the, the failure points in society right now is we don't actually trust curiosity enough. 
Mm. And we actually try to suppress it. There's there's all kinds of examples. You know, Newton, first of all, was into alchemy. Mm. And a lot of his early ideas about the nature, the nature of physics, people saw as nonsense. Mm. And I haven't studied Newton enough, but I wouldn't be surprised mm. if some of his superfluous wanderings into alchemy ended up helping him think better about the nature of the universe, even if those two things can't quite be quantified, the relationship between them. Mm. I'm not sure, but it's something I'd look into. And then the other thing is, if you just look at school curriculums, it's all very sort of rational. Kids need to learn math, need to learn this, need to learn that, all these sorts of things. And by trying to standardize school instruction, we've taken out a lot of the places where kids can just be really curious. I mean, think about how 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 you learn, and I know this from hanging out with you. Every time I'm with you, I feel like you're on to something new. There's some new trail that you're following, and it's like, what's Jimmy going to be obsessed with today? <laughs> and it's all sort of wrapped inside of this context, which I think is the the twin pillars that are central to your work, which are God and and mm. and and Bitcoin. Mm. But you always kind of bring it back to that. But actually the thing that you are really the the beam mm. that you're riding is mm. very rarely directly mm -hmm. on both of those two things mm. and but imagine how much less you would enjoy your own learning if i said jimmy you can't learn what you want this week mm -hmm. you have to follow this curriculum that i've mm. laid out for you you wouldn't be happy mm. and so i think that there's just a trust and curiosity that we need to adopt and embrace yeah that's a great point i i do feel like um we just sort of like beat the curiosity out of kids <laughs> uh, through forcing them to it's learn absurd. stuff that they they're not really interested in and it, it, it and for me that that's the big thing about teaching that uh, that is so different than what i thought it was when i was going to elementary school or whatever mm -hmm. you saw just sort of like an authority figure in the middle and they told you what you had to learn um, whereas when I'm teaching my classes or something like that, I get a bunch of students that are motivated to learn whatever it is I'm teaching. Um, in, in my case, it's Bitcoin. In your case, it's writing. And it's so much of a better experience because they want to know stuff and you have the information and they're eager to absorb it yep. um, because they're very curious about it as opposed to, you know, the typical, you know, graduate school or you know any, any level of school where it's all right how do i get an a and that's that's really all they care about mm -hmm. um so so tell me about um how you handle this problem with um with curiosity like what what because i i think for a lot of people what ends up happening is that they aren't curious about much at all, except what's sort of like immediately in front of them. Oh, what's this listicle going to say? And then, you know, maybe feel some outrage or something like that. Because that, that, that seems to be at the core of what, what we're talking about is there, there's a curiosity that's natural that's been killed, and there's an artificial curiosity that's sort of taken over. Mm-hmm. I think that there's something deeper than curiosity mm -hmm. here that I think I know I have, I know you have, mm -hmm. and it is a desperate thirst for knowledge mm -hmm. with the end goal of understanding how the world works. Mm -hmm. And I think that if there's anything 
that is a theme in our conversations. Mm -hmm. It is just some kind of march towards truth mm. and trying to transcend what either of us are able to figure out on our own and collaboratively play in the sandbox that exists in the frontier of both of our minds and mm. say, what happens if we can pair up through conversation? What can we learn about the world together? Mm. And I think a lot of that is personality. Mm. I think that a lot of that is some sort of genetic magnetism towards trying to understand the world that we have. But at the same time, I would just, I just want to stop those people. And I want to say sort of two things. The first is like, look at how fascinating the world is. Like mm. the world is just a fascinating place. Mm. And I think this is why it's important to do things in the world too. Mm. I think that, you know, there is a kind of person who does well in the academy, who does well in just a world of sheer contemplation. That doesn't work super well for my personality. Mm. My curiosity is so often, okay, I have problems that I need to solve. Mm. Then I want to get information to figure <laughs> out that problem. Then I begin to learn and synthesize those ideas. Then I begin to do better in the world. Then I come up to a new problem and I'm like, oh wow, this flywheel is really starting to spin. Mm. And I think the best example of this is how many men have gotten into ideas because they started learning on the internet so that they could date better because <laughs> they couldn't pick up chicks and they were going to parties and they were just getting rejected. And all of a sudden they came across the, the world of dating and they were like, hey, this is really interesting. And mm -hmm. now all of a sudden they're going to parties, they're getting attention and mm -hmm. they're like, okay, now where else can I apply this? <laughs> and then they start thinking about, about how they can do better. I think that that's one of those things that is, that's really under discussed and mm -hmm. that that whole world of the dating blogosphere is a big entry point into intellectual curiosity. Not just intellectual curiosity. There, there's a whole sort of like self-improvement that happens yeah. after that, right? And it's uh, get ripped. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and it's it's interesting because it's uh, we we were conditioned at least 20 years ago. We were conditioned very differently to think about dating this way. Think about you know how what you're supposed to do. Turns out that a lot of it is just kind of propaganda for somebody else's benefit hmm. that, that, you know, that's, and a lot of men have, uh, young men especially have sort of discovered this and said, okay, like I, I need to do something differently. How, how, how can I find something that's actually effective? And they become way more curious, not just about that, but you know, once you have some some success sort of thinking for yourself, they seem to go and apply it to other places. That that seems to be sort of like the pattern for curiosity. Hmm. Am, I, am I right? Like uh, of like finding some success, learning on your own and then realizing, OK, maybe I can apply this to some other stuff where it's not working in my life. So how, how do you get that? Um, what, what's like, like, cause for me, like dating isn't a great entry point for, I mean, it can be if you, especially cause a lot of young men want to date and they want somebody and it's sort of like a desperate need for them. Although, you know, that that's another whole t conversation. 
what other sort of entry points that are practical can you think of that 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 well, would work? I almost want to like question the premise of what you're asking mm -hmm. here, mm -hmm. and take a you know, there's the famous Rousseau line: mm -hmm. "Man is born free, and everywhere is in chains." <laughs> That's nonsense. But mm -hmm. if we took the same mm -hmm. sentence structure, mm -hmm. "Man is born curious, mm -hmm. but everywhere is made uncurious," <laughs> I think is 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 much more right. And the question I have for you is, mm -hmm. aren't your kids pretty curious naturally? Isn't mm -hmm. that a very natural disposition that we have as human beings? Mm -hmm. And then aspects of that get get beaten out of us. I mean, you've been, you're clearly very concerned about this because mm -hmm. you send your kids to mm -hmm. one of the most innovative schools I've, I know. Mm -hmm. And so this is clearly mm -hmm. something you've picked up on. Yeah, I mean, I, I do feel like they're, it is beaten out of them. And, uh, and the, I, as a parent, that's, this is something that I do want to like stoke in them is, okay, yeah. how can I get you to be more curious and want to learn? Because the desire to learn is not easy to stoke, even though it's there naturally. Once, once it's been beaten out, they, you know, they're very hesitant to go and learn something, especially if their parent tells them. Which is why I'm asking that question. It's okay. You have the dating thing, which works for a lot of young men. If there are lots of women too, um, there's also, you know, men that are already married or mm -hmm. with somebody or whatever. What uh, what other entry points or making money? <laughs> making money. I mean, okay. I think that that is the big one. Mm -hmm. You know, we how many kids now? Mm get really into ideas mm -hmm. uh, through buying and selling sneakers on the internet. Okay. <laughs> so like, I think that this is often, this one of the things I'm most excited about mm -hmm. when I become a dad is mm -hmm. like having, when will be the moment that my kid has something that they're interested in mm -hmm. that I think is nonsense mm -hmm. that I'm not interested in. And how can I basically like incurve like, like bend their curiosity with that into mm -hmm. something useful and relevant. So for example, take something like selling sneakers. Okay, so you want to sell the cool Virgil Abloh Air Force mm -hmm. One special edition at a good markup. Okay, so let's figure out, let's talk about stocks mm -hmm. and how trading on the internet uh, happens. Let's talk about economics. Let's mm -hmm. talk about what actually creates and generates demand. Okay, mm -hmm. so now that we know that, let's start thinking about predicting mm -hmm. what shoes, once they drop and we can get them for retail price, how do we begin to predict what sh which ones of those shoes are gonna go up in value the most? <laughs> and now you start playing this game of, okay, there are a bunch of, by learning more, knowing more about the world, you can then go make more money. Mm -hmm. Now, your kid has a little bit of money in their piggy bank and they're like, whoa, this learning thing is pretty cool. And I think that making money is something that kids are, kids know that money is important in the world. And once they get into high school, I think in particular, and they have access to the internet, they're like, hey, I can actually use making money to start being curious. And I think that that's one of the interesting things about crypto mm -hmm. and about the Robin Hood movement and about just the consumerification of stocks and trading, mm -hmm. which, you know, there's good things, there's bad things about it. But I think this is one of the plus sides is that the, it truly has been democratized. And so mm -hmm. kids start learning about 
economics and stuff at a younger age. They don't think of it in that language, but mm-hmm. that's fine. Yeah, I mean, I, I do feel like uh, way too many of them get into altcoin trading, which I think is actually like <laughs> that's horrible for you them. Said that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, there 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 is that curiosity, and you know, as a parent, it's uh, you know, it frightens it would frighten me if my like kid was into altcoins and like pumping random stuff and posting and trying to you know manipulate other people or something like that um but that actually does happen so it's um but i i do catch what you're saying like making money is a huge motivator and a driver for curiosity um and you know i think you also mentioned a lot of the you know deadly sins as sort of like a motivator for a lot of people to you know know something or to prove somebody wrong or mm-hmm. to whatever um in, in a sense that 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 seems a little bit depressing because i <laughs> i want a, a more positive reason i guess to go and learn stuff uh, and i don't know maybe maybe i'm being well, a little more idealistic I, look i i think that the positive reasons mm-hmm. come mm. And I'm not saying that you need to tap into these base level desires mm, necessarily, mm. but these are the things I'd say to people who aren't curious. Mm. Uh, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, I think that as you begin to learn, as you begin to cultivate a sense for beauty and actually appreciate quality, mm. that then becomes something that you pursue for its own end. Mm. But emphasis on the word becomes. I mm. didn't have this. Mm until much later Mm. and it took me a long time of trying to pursue things only as a means Mm. until i could pursue them as an end Mm. and what what does that feel like what's the sort of end game for the people that are listening like what does that get you what how does it enrich your life or make it better by having i don't know that curiosity as an end and being able to pursue those things i mean it just it adds it adds such a it's hard to put this in rational language but it adds Mm. such a it adds a real depth to the world i mean Mm. there's a painting called notre dame de la garde by paul signac my Mm. favorite painting in the world i think it was painted in 1906 and i flew to Mm. marseille in southern france to to just sit where the painting was Mm -hmm. was made and because I was going to southern France, I ended up uh, going and, and, and going to Aix-en-Provence, which mm-hmm. where a lot of these painters were, especially Cezanne was in Aix. And I told our tour guide that I was interested in this stuff, and he took me to the very place, the little plateau where Cezanne painted over and over again this famous painting of the mountain, mm-hmm. which is the beginning of Cubism. And so just in that trip... I see this sort of late impressionism that is in Signac, this early cubism of Cezanne, and you can actually see how there's different ways of looking at the world and like these shifts in consciousness that 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 happen at the beginning of the 20th century, and you can begin to see this interplay between what you've seen on these paintings, then what you read in the books to prepare for the trip, then what you actually see when you're there, and then all of a sudden now. I was reading this paper about Cezanne 
couple days ago, and I've actually been to the places where the paper is talking about, and mm -hmm. now you're in these compounding loops where the world is becoming richer and more magnified, and it's like you know the 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 scale of color in the world. It's like Photoshop is almost getting turned up. It's getting brighter, and you know so often the reasons that the world feels stale or uninteresting isn't that it is it's just that you lack knowledge about it and what's so fun to do is walk around with somebody who is an expert in a place who is an expert in a thing and all of a sudden they start seeing things that you don't see mm -hmm. you know like go walk around something as simple as like go walk around your apartment building with an architect mm. and all of a sudden they'll start telling you about okay that's really interesting this they tried to save money hey that's a really good way to think about that oh we did this because in texas the climate is like this and so mm -hmm. it's actually all comes back to materials and and, mm -hmm. and then you just start working like the world is so rich and knowledge becomes the key that you use to unlock that richness mm. so there's a more depth to life i guess maybe or it, to it how makes the seeing. world pop like mm. it, it it just does you know like if you don't know anything i guess at one level like there is the youthfulness of not knowing things which is fun mm -hmm. which is wow then that's sort of walking around in a constant state of being astonished mm -hmm. and so that's fine but then later on and that's great like that's a lovely part of time do, mm -hmm. part of life doing new things but then later on, you end up with like this appreciation, this understanding, and there's something really fun about that too, because you can piece things together and you can begin to constellate ideas from, from, from different sectors of society. My goodness, you become creative. You start making things, and now mm. you've made something beautiful, and then other people are complimenting you on it. You know, I'm I'm struggling to point to any specific thing. It all really is about this loop of I have a problem in my life. I learn something. Okay, now I am doing a better job of solving that problem. So then the next time I have the problem, and then that loop you spins around and around, and it just becomes intoxicating to 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 cycle around it. So, um, I th I think what you're arguing for is it's a, it's just a richer life yeah. rather than yeah. sort of like a moment to moment one but one that's deeper because you're you focused on the long-term things yeah. uh and you have a lower time preference well i think i think that's a that's a good place to maybe um end this uh but where where can people find you where can people contact you so my website is mm. perel.com p-e-r-e-l-l.com but one of the things that I would recommend for mm -hmm. people is just search my name, David Perel, mm -hmm. and then search Friday Finds Links. Mm -hmm. I've been collecting my favorite links on the internet for the last five years, and I describe them all, and that page must be 40,000, 50,000 words worth of recommendations. And if you go Friday Finds Links, you'll find something that you like. Mm -hmm. Indeed, I subscribe to that. So, um, yeah, thanks for, thanks for talking with me. Thanks, Jimmy. So, Jimmy, what do you think – you were a rite of passage student, uh -huh. and you really gave it your all. What do you think it takes to succeed in rite of passage? Yeah, um, I think for uh, having observed a bunch of other students and stuff, I think the, the biggest thing is just, like, commitment and time. Uh, and that's something that not a lot of people 
not everyone wants to do uh, because you know they have busy lives or it's not a priority for them. But if you're really actually curious and want to improve at the craft, you're going to have to do some stuff that you don't want to do. Um, and it's that commitment to doing some of the stuff that you don't want to do that really makes you improve. I think um, in a sense, like uh, you have to get through the boring part to really produce something awesome and that uh, you know you have to sort of have that mentality it's not going to be you know fun and games kind of like amusement park experience um I, i don't know if that's the expectation some people come in with but there's there's work and you you got to be willing to put in the work and um and that that would be the number one thing that i think uh will get people to really get the most out of it I think for you, what really st- stood out was your commitment to publishing consistently. Mm. <laughs> well, I, I published, I think, once a day, right? Yeah. Like, and that that was uh, that that wasn't easy, let me tell you. But uh, but it it's kind of like um, like the the best uh, you know coaches and and whatever. Uh, so I I was reading about a, a soccer coach that just runs his players ragged during practice right he's like you you have to do these like full-length sprints uh and you know like a lot of the players can't do it and they like lie down for a few minutes and then join back and try it or whatever and the reason why he trains his uh, players that way is because after you've done that then you know it like the games are easy Mm -hmm. um so in a way, this is what you want to be able to do is if you can publish a bunch of things and write a passage, then, you know, you get asked to go write something like, you know, a thousand words contributing to something. You can do it. And it's it's not that hard because you've you've sort of pushed yourself. So you have that endurance. And I, I would, uh, you know, suggest that, uh, you know, getting to that point of, you know, getting your four pieces out, right? Like that's, mm-hmm. that, that's the model. Um, you, if you can get four publishable things out of this class, then you, you're, you know, publishing like one thing a month, it's, it's going to feel really easy or much easier. And that's, uh, that's where you want to be where, uh, you know, things come easier because you've done much harder. How has your writing process changed from mm. before you took the course to after? Yeah. Uh, so before I would um, I would sit there staring at a blank page until words came, um, and that's a very hard way to uh, and a very harsh way to write. Uh, it's not very enjoyable. It feels like you you you're kind of like pressing yourself to like have a creative thought, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that it, it's I mean, I, I've done it enough times where, you know, I just sort of dread it and go do it anyway. Uh, but I think after the course, the, the main thing that changes is uh, I, I'm now writing from abundance. So I have a lot of ideas and, uh, you know, there there's a process that I've developed, I think, having <laughs> published so many things where it's okay just jot down some ideas just get started right Mm -hmm. like and uh getting started is oftentimes like the hardest part for me that's that's the point where i get stuck a lot um and 
you know, I, I don't want to get started because, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know, I dread that feeling or whatever. But jotting down notes, it, it feels much easier. Mm -hmm. And just, okay, just a few ideas, whatever it is, just write down three ideas about this essay that you want to write. And, you know, I might have like seven or eight. And I, I know what, how many words each, each idea now takes. Um, and then like order them, right? Like make sort of like a map or something like that of uh, how to get from point A to point B. And then sort of flesh that out more fully. And it doesn't feel like you're staring at a blank page because you've sort of like developed a skeleton first and you're just sort of putting meat on the uh, on the bones afterwards. And, you know, it, it, I, I hated that process of that first draft. It's a little more enjoyable because... Now I just sort of like have interesting ideas and it's like, okay, let's see if it, it makes it in or if it doesn't, that's okay too. And, you know, that it, it's so much easier to get something out than it used to where, you know, like I would be staring at a blank page. Yeah. What idea from the course, what concept has stuck with you the most? Writing from abundance uh, yeah. def definitely was the biggest one because I, I, I think um, like getting into this info capture idea, but it, it's not necessarily information from other people. It's it's my own thoughts. And I've had so many different ideas and then I'd forget them or whatever. Um, now I have some place where I can capture them and I can go back and search for them and I can grab certain things. Um, and it's oftentimes not even about the idea uh, really or having them really super well organized or anything like that. It's this habit of thinking of ideas. And, mm. and, uh, and once you have that, then you can generate ideas a lot easier because you're in that mode of, okay, what, what thoughts do I have about this? So it's changed me as a reader because you know, it used to be that I would just read read for the information. Now I read and, you know, every once in a while I'll pause. It's like, oh, that was interesting. I need to jot that down. Um, idea generation comes so much easier for me now. Um, and, you know, it wasn't like I was bad at it before, but I have an abundance of ideas. And, you know, you give me a topic and I can, you know, like come up with five or six things okay, that's actually enough for an essay. I, I don't even need to go back to my notes. That habit is actually very valuable to go and develop. It's, it's, it's a muscle that you need, especially in any creative endeavor where you, you have this ability to, you know, come up with ways to look at the world in a different way and capture them and then make an essay out of it and, you know, have some cohesion around it. That, that for me, um, was very valuable, like practicing and exercising those muscles. Can you talk about some of the ways that your writing career has changed since you've taken the course? You're now writing a regular column for Bitcoin Magazine. What mm -hmm. else has happened? Uh, well, so that that's the main one. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I guess I'm uh, I'm writing a little more purposefully uh, with my newsletter. I, I moved that to paid. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm getting paid for <laughs> stuff that I was doing for free. Um, the column for Bitcoin Magazine, I'm going to probably turn that into a book in the next next few months. I'll definitely turn it into a book, just the timeline I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely sure on yet. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, having um, 
sort of this ability to, you know, come up with essays on a given topic and being able to think through ideas. It's almost like um, an improv class for a comedian or something like huh. that, where you you just practice so much that you can just come up with stuff. Um, I, I feel like that that was a large part of Rite of Passage. It's, uh, you know, I, I've gotten better at idea generation. I've gotten better at sort of like developing those ideas into sort of like a nice chunk of text that explains it clearly, uses analogies, maybe adds a joke in there, you know, varies it. So there's like, um, uh, it, it's more pleasant to read. There's there's more craft. Uh, I can still work on a lot of that stuff. But, you know, there, there's at least a framework by which I can sort of judge Okay, th this is a good paragraph. That's not a good paragraph, or that's that's a an interesting thought. That's not an interesting thought, and the, those have uh, have definitely um, helped me to I don't know make my writing better. I guess uh, I, I I don't know. I, I, I don't know. it feels better for me. Uh, I don't know that, about my readers. <laughs> did that come from? pop writing was it mm. pop writing that changed how you wrote yeah so i i never really wrote to entertain uh which uh which i think pop writing definitely added um and that wasn't a perspective that i really had and i started inserting jokes into my writing and it just read way better and it was it, it was it was a lot more fun for people to read and you know it made me more proud of my work um that that's a dimension that I think uh, I didn't really get or understand until it was like, oh, OK, you want to sort of like change the emotional tone here and like get people to laugh. Because the, the thing about like laughter is that it sort of bypasses a lot of the circuits uh, of like, OK, critically examining something. And my writing before that was very um expository or argumentative or something like that most of the time if you just come up with that like one really good analogy or a good joke or something like that it devastates the uh like the you know thing that you're making fun of without needing to go through a detailed argument on why and it's it's a lot more fun to read a lot more uh, a lot less um sort of like straining for the reader to like think through um so that that was definitely a part that i've tried to adapt into my writing um and you know I've, I've read several books on like how to come up with good jokes and things like that uh, and that's a that's a part that I, I still need to work on but it it's been fun yeah and talk about some of the people who you met in Rite of Passage. Mm -hmm. Was there a particular person a particular conversation that you had during the course that really stuck out um, well, I, I mean, I talked to everybody, I reviewed a lot of stuff, um, and there, there were a lot of people that, uh, that gave me a lot of encouragement on, on, on the pop writing, especially, um, they were like, oh dude, that, that was awesome. I really enjoyed that. And it's like, oh, okay. I need to, I need to do a little bit more of this. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the main thing I think, uh, from Rite of Passage that I, uh, I appreciate as a writer, which I, I, I don't know if everybody does is, you know, the, the feedback that you get from other writers is qualitatively different than you get from, um, you know, a typical reader. 
So, uh, you know, reader feedback, don't get me wrong, is very useful. But when you get feedback from other writers, um, that that's gold. And that that's uh, something that you should pay very close attention to. And um, for me, at least, that's worth the price of the course is getting other uh, sort of like people reviewing it and reading it and uh, giving you sort of like tips on how to make it better. Um, for me, th that was a lot of different people. And I wrote so much that I got just so much, so much different feedback. It's hard to like single out a single person and say, hey, that 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 mm -hmm. person really helped me. Um, it was uh, it, it's that process of uh, of learning, uh, like what what works and what doesn't and getting sort of like rapid feedback. Um, it's uh and if you haven't experienced that in some aspect of your life like um you know you really need to experience that to really know but you know for example um you're learning how to play an instrument or something like that really good coach or somebody that can give you effective feedback hey go from this and do this instead of this uh, you know, you know, you're transitioning from one note, like keep the finger there or, you know, do do this or whatever. Those are the things that really sort of like accelerate mm -hmm. uh, your ability to uh, get better. And, you know, we live in a society that tells us, hey, you need to do everything on your own. Actually, like getting good coaching is is how you get better really fast um and this this is i think ultimately the role of the teacher and in a sense you don't have one teacher you it's actually like mm. 30 teachers or you know however many and that's that's the real valuable part that's uh that's where you improve and that's where you become a better writer how would you describe my involvement in rite of passage well, you produced the videos, you did the, uh, you know, uh, sort of like um, the, you know, you're, you're the face of the, uh, of the thing um, and you give instruction on what to do next. So in a sense, you're, uh, you're at the front of everything. I would, I, I would say that, um, you know, your, your involvement is, I think necessarily a little bit diluted because there's so many students. The real heart of it comes through peer to peer or through the mentors and things like that. Uh, they, uh, you get the overall view through your sessions, but the nitty gritty, you know, tiny improvement. It's it's kind of like a football team or something like that, where you have the head coach. You're like the head coach, but then you have lots of assistant coaches that are like working directly with you and mm -hmm. saying, okay, do this instead of this mm -hmm. or try this instead of this. Um, and oftentimes that, that's, uh, that's where you get the, you know, here's the trick that, you know, maybe you didn't know before, or here's how you applied that, what David said to, to your writing and so on. Um, so I, I would say that your involvement was mostly on the, here are the principles um, that you need to learn. Um, you know, the actual application of that, you know, is is sort of like lower on the uh, coaching, I guess, mm -hmm. scale.
And last question, is mm -hmm. there anything from CrossFit for writing that mm -hmm. stuck with you or how would you describe that process? Yeah, so CrossFit is just doing, right? Um, and oftentimes like uh, you're, you're not gonna know what tricks to employ until you're actually doing something. Uh, so, you know, if, if you're at football practice or something like that and you're a lineman, you have to actually block people instead mm -hmm. of just knowing all of the theory. So. A lot of the week when you're doing rite of passage is okay. Here, here's here's the theory. Here's how you apply it, and it's the classroom. You're watching film or you're learning the plays or whatever. But until you actually go and do, mm -hmm. it doesn't really stick. Yep. Uh, so, I for me the CrossFit sessions were really useful because okay, like how do I get um, you know a raw idea? generate more ideas, turn that into a map, turn that into an essay, um, and, you know, a first draft. And then, you know, like getting other people um, that are there, that are doing it with you, it's, it's, it's massively motivating. But you're, you're also getting to actually do this stuff. And it's timed and there's a, there's a process and you get more used to the actual process. Mm -hmm still use a lot of the processes uh, from, from CrossFit. So, um, yeah, very useful and important uh, part of the course. And, you know, you should definitely, you know, try it if you haven't. Is there anything else you want to say? Well, it's a, um, it, it was a very fun experience, a very intense experience for me. Um, uh, and I think for a month, it was just, you know, that that was uh, a, like it colored pretty much everything else I was doing. Um, but it's also very rewarding uh, because you come out with it with skills. Um, and of course, it depends on like what you're willing to put into it. You come out with skills that you can use for a, a lot of other things. Um, and and, you know, you can, uh, you know, come up with uh an essay on on the fly i like s several times during since then i i was asked by bitcoin magazine hey like uh we're we're gonna put out a print edition hey, uh could you come up with something and you know 12 hours later i had to draft it right and they were like how the heck did you do this and i, I was thinking you yeah, know I, I i did this all, all during like right of passage it wasn't you know, I mean, it, it, it wasn't easy, but it was I've done this before and I can do it again. Um, and they were like, and, and it, it was a good essay, like we're going to include it and all that stuff. Um, and uh, and that ability to sort of like do the, this stuff and the confidence you have in in doing it because you've done it so often and get and because you've gotten your reps in. Um, that's not really something that you can really put a price on. Um, and you know, if you, if you can get to that level, it's a, it's a wonderful place to be, but it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of, uh, dedication. So, you know, I, I would encourage everybody that's, uh, watching this video, like go in and, and do it. And like the reason why you're taking this course is to become a better writer. Well, like, uh, put in the work to make it worthwhile. Great answers, man. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.